is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are discussing the healing of a blind man and Jesus' subsequent teaching on a different kind of blindness. Yep, I don't know if Jesus is going to let us religious folk have too much of a rest here. He's just going to keep on going. He's going to keep on going till those religious folk kill him. Spoiler alert, but yeah, just more stories providing us more opportunities to reflect. They get pretty riled up in this chapter, but nobody seems to want to kill him this time. So True. This is true. Uh, it feels like we're working with a pharisaical crowd. A lot of these stories we've been dealing with a, a very Judean crowd, a very, uh, we would assume, more chief priest, more Sadducee, more Herodian, I think would be a, a safe assumption. It's no better than an assumption, but probably a safe assumption here. We still may have Judeans, um, and I wonder if that even shapes some of the story. We might pull that in a little bit later, but but Pharisees in particular, of the world of the synagogue and of religious devotion, and I think we pointed out in session three, the Pharisees are not typically, we have corrupt Pharisees that are working with the chief priests. We have Pharisees that are working with the Sadducees in general. The pharisaical worldview is not the worldview that's trying to kill Jesus. They may not like what he says, but some of them do, and maybe most of them don't. Maybe some of them don't, but they're they're not out to kill the guy. But yeah, we don't see that in this chapter. It's a nice uh, change of pace for the Gospel of John. <laughs> Perhaps a nice change of pace for Jesus. <laughs> Maybe it was a little bit of respite. It's like, can we just have a can we just have a conversation here? <laughs> can we just have a church argument? <laughs> oh man! All right, Brent, get it, let's get into it. We're not going to read too very you know far before we have something to talk about. No doubt. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All right. So pretty normal cultural religious debate. Some might call it, you know, full of just different, like, levels of religious superstition. Oh, here's a book I didn't even think about, Brent. We could recommend uh, Every Man's Talmud by Abraham Cohen. Did we recommend that recently? Maybe? I believe so. like I've... Yeah, okay. Anyway, well, there you go. Put it in there again. But he'll do a great job talking about uh, like the Mishnaic period, obviously the Talmud, what the Jewish understanding was, especially when it comes to like different superstitions, those kind of things. It's a great source for that. But the cultural religious conversation surrounding something like this, this man in this condition here is obviously somebody's done something wrong. The debate was about who. Is it him or was it his ancestors? Was it him or was it his family? Was it him or was it his parents? Obviously, somebody did something wrong. That's why he's suffering. But but who did something wrong? So the disciples are like, oh, let's get our rabbi's take on this great cultural debate. Which one's right? And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right. So Jesus says, wrong question. Two options that neither one is true. Neither he nor his parents sinned. I think we typically read this passage 
especially as we hear it in the English, and I think we come up with a third option that's equally not true. <laughs> I think we hear Jesus say like, oh, no, it wasn't because this guy sinned or that guy sinned. God did this to him so that he could later show his glory in his life. And I'm not sure that's Jesus's point here. Like, it's very Western of us to make those connections, to logically do the cause and effect thing. It's a very Western thing to do. It's how our philosophical minds work. But I think Jesus is actually deflecting the conversation to a completely different place. He's saying, this is just life. Like, people are just born with different conditions, and things happen, and the world isn't as it ought to be, and there's disruption of shalom everywhere. The question isn't about why this happened and what caused it. The question is about what we're going to do with it now. What's going to happen now? What do you do with the situation now? And so I think that's Jesus' point, not that Jesus... I think oftentimes we read that passage and we're like, oh, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his parents' fault. It was essentially God's fault because God wanted to do something in his life. And I think Jesus' point is, it's nobody's fault. God longs to do something in all of our circumstances, no matter what those circumstances are. But I'll let the uh, listener wrestle with that themselves. And, and I've also looked at the rest of what he says there in that little that, that little response. I've looked at that for insight too. So read me that last, after he says, works, the works of God be just shown in his life. Give me that last verse or two again, Brent. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's, it seems to imply to me this very present tense. Maybe he's even uttering this in a way that the man bored blind as a part of this conversation. Like, like this guy's circumstances and condition, it's not anybody's fault. God wants to work in it. And while we're here and while it's light and while it's day, let's be about that thing. Like, let's be about the thing that God's doing in the world. We'll have plenty of time to struggle and suffer. Night is coming. John loves to do this play on light and darkness, day and night, the time where the opportunity is ripe, where Jesus is in the world, where things are shown as they ought to be, where pure wisdom and logos and Sophia are with us, and then the time when those things will no longer be with us and the struggle is far more real. That may be an oversimplification of a very intense, uh, complex theological discussion, but I digress, as I love to do. And speaking of time, uh, the the opening of the chapter, as he went along, um, the NET translates it as Jesus was passing by, but the phrasing there is just about as ambiguous as you could possibly get. So we're bounded a little bit by the festivals that occur before and after this story as to when it could be. Sure. But this could be right after he leaves Jerusalem. After our previous conversation, he's still talking about being the light of the world. So we kind of have that tie, but it also could be later. So it's just like this, this could be anywhere or anytime basically. Sure. And and that makes me like wonder, does John give any indication of how he wants us to hear it? And I'm not sure because of the ambiguous wording, if he is being intentional in that regard, because it would be interesting if this is basically a continued conversation with the previous reference to light of the world. Is he continuing to try to tell his disciples, like, this is what I'm trying to talk about. This is it. This is, this is the, the, the good stuff, like what we're doing right here. This is the moment where you understand what I'm trying to get at earlier. That a very interesting um, option there. I like that. Okay, moving on. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. All right. So we mentioned the pool of Siloam. I think it was a few episodes ago when we were talking about the water ceremony. Brett and I talked about the, the priest walking down to the pool of Siloam. And I even said, you were at the pool of Siloam. And I found out since we recorded that episode about a third pool I didn't even know existed. So there was an old pool of Siloam. They call that the lower pool. It was probably a part of the much earlier, earlier the first pool that was fed by the Gihon Spring. And then Hezekiah built the tunnel that you've walked in, Brent. Do you remember your time in Hezekiah's tunnel? I do. Uh, it was, yep, it was dark. <laughs> and then, and so then, <laughs> so great. Oh, man, inside joke, everybody. Um, and, uh, and then you came out of that tunnel and you ended in the what's called the upper pool. Now, I thought the upper pool was the pool. Apparently... Um, just to the southeast of that pool, they have found a third pool that's a part of what's often called the King's Garden, the Garden of the King. I have not seen it yet. I'm going to try to find this next time I'm there. I don't know if it's accessible or not, but that has three tiers worth of steps. The dating that they've found and other references they found, they're almost positive that that would have been the pool that the priest would have used during the days of Jesus that... This man would have gone and and uh, and washed in. So just fun archaeological facts. I didn't even know that. Learning new things every day. Um, but the pool means the word means sent. And what did Jesus say just in the paragraph prior? What do you got, Brent? He sends him. Uh, what's the actual? Let's see here. We must do the work of him who sent me. Okay, sent okay. me. Right. And I think there's supposed to be a tie there. I've wrestled with. You know, is the message here that the the man born blind is being sent? Is the message that it's a, a rabbinical um, lesson where he's using, he's tying those ideas together? Again, is Jesus inviting the man born blind to take part in this redemptive work of the kingdom? We have to be a part of the, so what are you going to do with your circumstances, with your situation? Let's be about the work of him who sent me. Go wash in the pool named scent. So interesting little connection. I never have come away with a huge thunderbolt conclusion as to what that's drawing on, but it's certainly there in front of us. Yeah. And the NET footnotes point that out. They're like, why would the author make this, you know, because people would know what it means, but why would he point it out? And, and yeah, basically the same sort of connection and idea. Yep. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. All right, so at this point, it's the neighbors and... Those who had formerly seen him begging. So at this point, it's just, you know, it seems to be the general public. They're relatively confused, as I could imagine anybody would be. The man was born blind, so this has been his condition his whole life. I, I've often wondered, like, I wonder how eyes are such a, a big part of a person's, like, what you see when you see a person, what you experience when you see a person. Like, I don't even know how to talk about it or... 
articulate what I'm trying to say, but eyes, like, I wonder what it was like to see somebody who had been born blind, whatever his eye condition was. And I, I had a friend that was a doctor that, um, I believe if I remember correctly, he told me that if you were born blind, your eyes wouldn't have even typically have even been formed in the same way that anybody else's eyes would have been formed. And so to have your, your, your eyesight restored, like you would have radically looked like a different person. And that would feed to this idea that people are like, ah, it's not him. There's something off about him. Yeah. There's something off. Cause you're seeing him in a completely different way now. Um, but, uh, yeah, at this point, we don't have the Pharisees involved yet, but they are coming, so uh, we can keep reading. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on now, which... Now, how do you read that, Brent? Do you assume that the they is... The neighbors and whoever whoever else was around. That's what I would assume, too. I guess, I mean, if it is the people who had formerly seen him begging, like, it could just be... I I think maybe neighbors is a little bit too familiar of a, of a word. Sure. It's probably yeah, yeah, just, yeah. like, yeah. people in town... People who are walking around, going about their everyday business. They've seen him here his whole life. He's at least 18 or whatever, I think we're going to find out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if, like, I, I wonder what their motivation was. Did they bring them to the Pharisees? They're like, oh, man, you're in trouble. Did they bring him to the Pharisees because they're like, look at this miracle that just happened? Did they bring him because the next verse is going to tell us what day it was? What day do we suppose this is happening, Brent? On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Are they bringing him because they're like, man, is this okay? Are they like, there could just be a million motivations, and maybe there were there were a million motivations within the different personalities that were involved here in the crowd bringing them to the Pharisees. Who knows? But I've often wondered, like, what was their motivation driving? What did they hope the Pharisees did when they brought brought him to them? Uh, now, I don't, yeah, I don't think that they brought him there because it's the Sabbath. And here's here's why. Let me read this. Ooh, I love this. Okay. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. I think if it if he had just had his sight healed they would have been like, okay, great, good for him. But because it was a Sabbath, the Pharisees are going to go do their own investigation. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely true. And did the crowd insinuate that or inform them of that? It seems like the Pharisees, like you said, do a little digging to, um, and, and somebody wrote me and pointed this out. They, they said one of their, one of their study Bibles had a note and I'm not sure I would have to go digging this up, but they, the study Bible that they were quoting made a big deal about how Jesus spit into mud and made mud, and that making of mud would have been the real transgression of the Sabbath. I don't think that's required here in that reading. I do see why they would say that in here, because they actually ask how. He tells them the method, and their next give – me, give me the next line. What's their response? Uh, yeah. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. All right. So this man's not from God. So is that because of the action he had with the mud or the healing? They don't reference either. So it's a kind of an argument from silence. We don't really know. Could be because of his actions in making the mud. Um. I've always seen that as a cultural play to some pagan myths. We know that John is always playing with the Torah and then simultaneously toying with 
pagan mythology. So I don't know. I don't know necessarily what to do with that. If that's true, I, I'm not aware of any, but you know, there were like 3000 Mishnaic laws about what was not allowed on Sabbath. So yeah, I don't know. I'm sure it's probably in there somewhere. Well, the NET footnote does say the Jewish religious leaders considered the work involved in making the mud to be a violation of the Sabbath, but they have no citations okay. for where that comes from. So, yeah. I, and I feel but, like yeah. they're normally really good about like, oh, it's Genesis Rabbi. It's whatever. Yep. And they don't have that. So I don't know. Yeah. And obviously we don't need it to be that because we've already seen that they have quite a problem with Jesus healing, uh, just the work of healing itself. Is that enough of a transgression uh, on the Sabbath? And, and I love this again. I'm trying not to be nearly as heavy handed in this episode today, but there's just more opportunity for us to reflect because we've talked before. Where are these regulations on the Sabbath that we're discussing? Making mud, and you said Genesis Rabbah. Is any of this stuff in written Torah, no, Brent? No, not really. <laughs> this is mostly halakha, and that's not like we're not we're not poo pooing halakha. That's not at all my point. I have a deep respect for halakha. I just think Jesus totally affirms written Torah and has words of critique at times about how uh, the 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 Jewish context is handling their traditions, and I find it interesting here. This man's not from God. Because he has, what was there a exact statement here in my NIV? This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Which really, what's being examined is he doesn't keep our traditions about Sabbath. Now, there's probably at least a moment of reflection we could do about how much that is also true for our evangelical worldviews and what the Bible actually says versus all the things that we say the Bible is trying to say when it says those things. Um, I think it's probably easier to fall in that pitfall, that you know that um, that hole than than we might think it is. But I digress again. Nevertheless, um, another interesting note from the footnotes uh, when it says some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God. the The way the verb is constructed is like a change in something. So they didn't they didn't like presume that he's not from God as this man was brought in. But then as they heard the story and found out it was on the Sabbath, then they shifted their thinking and they said, Oh, now that we know what we know. And it's more like they began saying this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Fascinating. Fascinating. You're Brent. You're becoming our little Jewish scholar or, or our, our Greek scholar. It's wonderful. <laughs> this NET, this NET world that has opened up, it's just, I, I hated Greek. I don't know any of these insights. And yet, <laughs> here you are bringing them to the table. It's fantastic. Well, there is a lot of uh, notes to wade through, but I'm happy to do the work if it, if it brings anything to the podcast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, let's see. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs so they were divided? Okay, so there's another group of people. Oh, man, this is actually such good reflection fodder. I hope, I hope, we, I hope we maximize this in our discussion groups and everything else. So there's a whole group of people that's going to say, um, uh, well, we know that he's not from God because he doesn't follow our traditional dogmatic doctrinal understanding. And there's going to be a whole other group that go, they, they're going to hold it up against the fruit. We talked about that a lot in session three. Like Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You can't find gr- grapes on thistles or figs on thorn bushes. Like if you got grapes, you got a grapevine. If you got figs, you got a fig tree. It might look like a thorn bush, but like we did that whole discussion in session three, and you have a group of people that's doing that. Like they're looking at it going, okay, but that doesn't make sense. 
And again, you know, an opportunity for us to reflect, do we look at things that we experience in the world in and around things that bump up against our ministries, our churches, our, uh, the groups that we belong to, and they're not wearing the t-shirt, they don't fit the whatever, and, but, but, but we bump up against some weird fruit that could only come from one place, but we have this like immediate disregard like, ah, nope, that's not, obviously that's not from God because this, this, and this. I mean, obviously because they don't do this like we do. They don't read the Bible the same way that we do. They're, they're not even Christians. They, and, and yet you'll always have people that are sitting there going, but wait a minute, like, how could, how could this be true if that's right? And those things could, should prompt us to go, okay, let me step back and reconsider whether God, you know, a Balaam moment here. Could God be working outside what I consider to be the boundaries, coloring outside the lines? God loves to do that. So another good moment of reflection for us here in the story. And I was just thinking about like the fact that this is on a Sabbath. Um, Somebody asked on Slack the other day, and I can't even remember what the original question was, but I ended up digging into Jesus' miracles and figuring out when he healed people and basically, I mean, he's, I'm open to, uh, any additional references because Jesus did a lot of healings, but it seems like most of the time people were coming to Jesus or others brought people to Jesus for healing, or there's some sort of like a direct ask, like I, yep. I want yep. you to heal me or I want you to heal my friend or I want you to heal my daughter or my son or whatever. Some initiative on the, on the part of another party. Yeah. But then all of, there's all these cases where Jesus heals someone and they didn't ask. He's just going along and he sees somebody or the disciples point somebody out or whatever. And Jesus ends up healing them. And all of those cases are on the Sabbath. Which I love because I think the people wanting the healing probably aren't going to presume to ask Jesus to do something that they know is going to get them in trouble and reinforces the idea that we talked about in session three, that miracles often had a reason, a teaching point, a rabbinical agenda when he would engage it. Like Jesus wants to engage this. And um, this is something he is initiating. The initiative is on, and that not to violate another person's agency, but he's initiating these conversations on the Sabbath because he has something to say about what Sabbath truly is about. Would that fit what you feel like you observed as you looked at it? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's just interesting that the people, they've been, they've seen healings many times and they know right. that this stuff does not happen on the Sabbath. So I'm not going to bother asking. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's great. I remember watching that discussion on Slack and I, that's such a great observation. That people would have that kind of self aware Of course they would. If this is that big of a deal as it seems like it is in the Gospels, of course people are not going to be like, hey, will you get yourself in trouble? They're like, uh, I hope I catch you tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's read on. Um, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The real reality of religious power dynamics, and it's it's as old as time, it's been going on for 2,000 years at least in this story, even more, just what happens when... um, people that run that religious worldview have something to gain or to lose and how those things get all twisted. And it's, it's again, I mean, I'm I'm trying not to beat a dead horse. I'm really, really trying not to, but there's just so much opportunity on a Peshat level to continue to reflect on this stuff. Uh, We, we do this all the time and I'm trying not to project my own story onto this, but man, if I had, if I had like a, a dollar for every email I got wanting me to explain this reference or that author that I quote, I wouldn't have to fundraise. Um, and and but and then people will corner somebody else about, well, what does he think about this? And what? And we still have these exact same conversations, and we always try to pin somebody into a corner, so that then we can go, ah, see, see, not of not of God, not of Jesus, not they color outside the line. See, they don't fit, and we always will just. Rather than deal with the actual, because the thing that they're trying to avoid dealing with here is what the blind man, I love what the man born blind here, now having been healed, he keeps holding the line, like, I'm not going to get into any of those debates. Here's what I can tell you. I have my experience. Explain to me what just what we just experienced. And he keeps bringing it back to that. They keep trying to deflect to some dogmatic conversation. And the man says, I don't know about any of that. Here's what I know. I know who he was. I know what he did. I know what I assume to be true. Explain to me how those things come together. And they, oh, let's go talk to his parents. And we just, we do so much of the same stuff today. Okay. So the NIV actually translates something away here. There's a shift. There's a shift in the audience. So uh, verse 16, it's explicitly the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. This could be the Pharisees, could be the group of Pharisees plus the others. Either way, we're we're still there. The man replied, he's a prophet. And then in verse 18, the NIV says, they still did not believe that he had been blind. But that's actually, the they is the Judeans, that, that Greek Judeoi or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, you the, the new, my old NIV has it. Your new NIV doesn't Mm-mm. translates that away. Yep. That's fascinating. They got rid of that intentionally. It makes it seem like it's still the same. Now they shift, they shift in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, but it actually starts back in verse 18. So the, the, the Judeans are the ones who bring in the, the parents in the first place. Right. And the way that and it, the way that NET translates it, it says now the Jewish religious leaders refuse to believe. Yep. Because it does it does go back to the Pharisees later. So I it's like why I, I don't know. It, were other people coming in? Like where is this actually taking place? We don't know yep. for sure. Yep. <laughs> so yep. there's a lot of you know, a lot of different potential audiences here. Yeah. Okay. Um back to the text. Where do we leave off? Twenty four. Twenty four. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. 
He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Man, I just, I, I just, I'm a broken record, Brent, but man, <laughs> I've just sat in so many church circles, uh, leadership meetings, not too many, luckily, that I've been, in, but I've been around them enough, watched it happen. I have been in some where we... <laughs> We, we do this. All right. Just make sure they, they make sure they go affirm the right stuff. We know this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. Follow the program and make sure you say this too. Like we just try to manipulate and force people. And I just love this man's ability and the story to, and it's not like he has a man born blind. I'm sure he's, he knows suffering. He knows struggle. I'm sure he feels like he has. I mean, we're going to see he's got more to lose here, what their response ultimately is to him. But um, I feel like he probably feels like he doesn't have a whole lot to lose. And to stand in the confidence of his experience, to see this for what it is, and and not in an inappropriate way, not in an attacking way, just in a resolute confidence and commitment to hold the line and continue to call the conversation to where it needs to be and not get it deflected to where it shouldn't be. Um, I just really admire that. It's, it's also something to learn from. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And again, the ability to, I'm sure they're all, I'm sure they could talk for days about the depth of theology, the complexity of their position and Moses's teachings and laws and statutes. And, but yet this man born blind just keeps it unbelievably simple and and straightforward. I've wondered at times if he's even trying to flip their own worldview on their head. And maybe he doesn't even understand how his own worldview has been deconstructed. This has just happened to him. Did he, at the beginning of the story, did the man born blind believe that this was his lot because either he or his parents sinned? Did he have that understanding? I would almost assume he wrestled with that day in and day. That's what the world told him. Now, at the end of the story, after this, he kind of quotes that same logic back to the Pharisees. And I don't know if he's quite been set free from that own worldview for himself, but he's certainly using it back on them. He's like, well, wait a minute. We we know that sinners don't get to walk around and do these kinds of, these kinds of things. And so I, I just love, I, I don't know if that's an intentional, uh, like a super um, clever, shrewd response that he's kind of issuing back to them, but... Um, I, I, I do kind of like the callback there to, well, we know this about sinners, like sinners get punished, sinners don't, sinners don't get blessed. And, and now he uses that same logic to be like, but how is this guy doing what he's done? If he's not coming, if his source, again, the same kind of theme that we've been seeing in John, the source, the origin, if where he comes from isn't the place that does healing and goodness and restoration and redemption and wholeness and shalom, how could that possibly be? I just, 
enjoy his commitment to simplicity. Yeah, and he doesn't seem particularly trained necessarily. He's not quoting a bunch of text to them. Uh, earlier when he said that uh, he replied, he is a prophet, as in Jesus. He's not saying the prophet. He's not making a reference to Deuteronomy 18, or at least it doesn't seem that way, the way the, the Greek is constructed. So it's just, he's he's like, okay, you want to keep pressing me? Like, okay, fine, I'll I'll tell you something more. I've already told you the story, but if you want to keep pressing me, then I guess I'll say something else and see if it clicks differently. Like he doesn't necessarily have a particularly strong idea. He's not like, he's not claiming Jesus is the Messiah. He's not quoting text. He's not doing any of that stuff. He's just like, whatever you guys are saying, it doesn't make any sense. This seems pretty simple to me. I've told you what happened. Clearly he's from God. What more do you want from me? I don't have any more answers for you. I have so much commentary I want to add, but I'm going to very wisely and shrewdly keep my mouth shut. <laughs> amen and amen. I, yep, I agree. We'll keep reading. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. I'm glad we don't act like that anymore. But <laughs> And is that the synagogue that they're throwing him out of? Because the parents were concerned about being put out of the synagogue for a time. That's always been my understanding. And the phrase that they threw him out, I think, implies that, especially because of the context of the earlier reference. But you could argue that that's not necessarily what happened. But I be- man, I don't think there's a later reference. Yeah, I don't see anything. Um, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. I want to say I've even seen other references that even include, might even be David Stern's translation that even include thrown him out of the synagogue. But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where that would come from necessarily. There's no footnote on it, so I don't think there's any manuscript um, discrepancy or anything. Dis- disagreement, yeah. So. Oh, okay, I have a footnote here in my NIV. Um, phrase usually typically refers to excommunication. Uh, see the note on verse 22. Excommunication, yeah, they connected to that earlier verse about the parents. Uh, excommunication was repeated as early as the time of Ezra, um, but there is practically no information about the way it was practiced in this Second Temple time. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community life. Um, excommunication cut a person off from many social relationships, though in some forms, at least in later times, not from worship. Very interesting. Okay, well, there you go. And this is still that Judean audience, I believe, at this point. Yes. And I wonder if that shapes, like, I wonder if the Galilean Pharisees would have responded the same way. Uh, If he's in Judea, and if he's from there, and if that's where we're at in this story of John, which I think clearly we are, then you you do have a different subculture of Pharisee here. Judeans are going to be a little bit more Hellenistic, a little bit more like the form rather than the substance. Like, they go through all the religious practices, they do all the religious stuff. They have the systems and forms of religiosity and devotion. It was that Galilean crew that was like, they had the substance of that religious devotion and not always in a good way. They had that self-right, but but they're, I, I wonder if that even shaped the response here was, hey, you don't color outside the lines here in the Judean world. You want to do that? Go up to Galilee, but you don't do that here in Judea. And it could it could be at play here potentially. And then there's a little bit of a time shift here. Um, in the next verse, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" So some time has apparently passed. Jesus had to go find this guy, so could be in a different place 
could be a little bit later time. Yep. So definitely a, a potential, a new potential audience. Yep. Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, the Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I love that you pointed out the time phrase here, the time, the time, potential time, time lapse. That this isn't just one continuous conversation. Um, just because it, it, it just sets the stage a little differently with, with what's going to, the Pharisees are about going to respond here. And it could even be a different place, a different location. In fact, I think the language probably implies it's a different place. And they, they hear this, they catch this, and they respond. But So he just said, for judgment I have come into this world, which is so interesting based on the last episode or two episodes ago when we looked at judgment. I don't judge. My father doesn't judge. If I did judge, I'd have a lot to say. God is the judge. And, and, and yet this statement here, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those that see will become blind. Okay, go ahead. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And that's another one of those um, assumed negative responses. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. One of my favorite little verses that I've started to carry with me, not to use against other people, but just as a reflection point. It's when we claim to see that we're in such danger of our own spiritual blindness. When we claim to see clearly, when we, it's when we're willing to open our hands to be curious, to wonder where else God is at work, or to put it in John's language here in his gospel, to realize that we are seeing things from a uh, a worldly metric, a worldly perspective, a worldly paradigm, and God's inviting us to see something, a different paradigm, one that has descended. Uh, when 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 we don't open ourselves up to when we think we got it all figured out we see oh jesus we see jesus says ah yeah if you think you see you are you are as blind as ever if you were actually blind you could see like and there's that play on well, I'll tell you, it's it's when you can't see anything at all that you truly and I, and I go back to Matthew's gospel the agenda of the mumser that whole conversation those people that are, are are on the outside so typically get this, uh, so easily get this. It's so accessible and so simple, just like we saw in this story, and straightforward for them. It's when you think you have it all figured out and you think you can see that you find yourself in such trouble. So just love that verse. I carry it with me often because I, I don't want to say I can see. I don't want to say I can see. And I've learned I've learned so many amazing, cool, beautiful things. Uh, I've had great teachers. I've learned so much and will continue to learn so much. I'm not going to take away from that at all. I'm not going to act like I haven't learned things. I'm not going to act like I don't know things. But I don't know, no, no things. Like I, I only know things. And that one of my favorite sayings, the more you know, the more you realize how little, how little you know. And when you when you claim to when you claim that you can see when you think you've got it all figured out you can see it you've got it this is that's when you may be in the most dangerous place of all. But uh, one more recommendation, Brent. Um, I was just thinking today about the prophetic imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Um, there's a chapter in there, a great little book, man. It's about the size of the Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. 
Um, just a thin little book, but packed full of meaning. Just does not waste a single word in that thing. And uh, talks about the it, – it's basically a book on on the prophetic mind, prophets. But unlike Heschel's book on the prophets, which was some 700 pages long, um, this is a, a really compact study. And he, he talks about – like in chapter one, he talks about how Moses came to bring an alternative community – in chapter two, he talks about how Solomon basically does the opposite of that, kind of undoes this alternative community. Um, Foreman talks about how the prophetic imagination functions and works in the prophets. Um, and then uh, uh, I think it's chapter five, he gets to Jesus, and he starts talking about how Jesus engaged in the prophetic imagination. It's it's such a phenomenal book. It's on like every bibliography of any teacher I've ever learned anything from it's, and I finally got my, I'd used it before I'd had people read me excerpts, but I finally got my own copy and it, it was just so good. Recommended it on the Facebook page the other day. Um, but, uh, he talks in there about the ways that Jesus uses the prophetic imagination to criticize and energize. Those are Brueggemann's two words, criticize and energize, criticize. And How do you criticize what he calls the Royal consciousness? What, he'll, what he calls empire, probably where I got a lot of my empire and shalom language. How do you criticize the the royal consciousness, the imperial consciousness, and simultaneously energize the kingdom of God's people? And he says, and he goes through and he says, here's all these things that Jesus does to do that. And one of the things that he's criticizing is this religious royal consciousness, this religious consciousness as it surrounds Sabbath. And he says, you've totally got Sabbath backwards, and and it's no longer doing the thing that it came to do. And I just, you see that here yet again in whatever. Is this the third story, the fourth story of Jesus doing something on the Sabbath in John that's got everybody up in arms? And um, anyway, just a, a great book that I thought of as we read this chapter that I thought, man, we're going we're gonna to throw that in the show notes and recommend that. It's a wonderful little study. Uh, two other notes on the passage. Um the, the NIV does point it out in a footnote that uh, verse 38 and uh, the first Jesus said of 39 uh, are not in some of the earliest manuscripts. NET has a huge footnote on all of that, but basically uh, this would be the only time the word worshipped is used in reference to Jesus. The other times it's used in John, it's worshiping God. And the idea of worshiping a man would be pretty controversial. So um, it would kind of make sense that it's not necessarily there because the Pharisees are just like, oh, are we blind too? Like they're not responding at all to the idea that this guy is worshiping. Sure. Yep. I thought that as you read it, I thought, man, I can't believe that it says that. Um, not because I disagree with it. I just, it, it's an odd reference yeah, and they, for the conversation. They're like, well, you know, when you look at John's Christology overall, like this doesn't really change anything, whether it's there or not. You see Thomas, um, in chapter 20 doing, uh, it's not the same word, but it's, uh, yeah, some sort of worship of Jesus. So it's like, it, you know, it would, it would just be unusual for this guy to have that level of understanding at this point in the story is basically what they're saying. So, and, uh, and if he did to not evoke a, a very dra- dramatic reaction out of the Pharisees. Yeah. The other thing I thought was interesting is that it says some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this. It's like, well, so the Pharisees are just like, 
wandering around with Jesus. Jesus is like, oh, hey, uh, just heard about this guy. I need to go find him. You guys want to come with me? Like, okay. Or is the or is the him the man born blind, the the healed man? Oh, sure. But he's been kicked out potentially of the synagogue. Is that speak to any of that in any way? That's very interesting. Mm. Are they like still following him? Not to keep beating up the church on the church, but man, we'll kick people out and then continue to follow them well, everywhere. Well, if, on, if we say it's the Judeans who were the ones throwing him out, but then the Pharisees are like, well, we think there might be something going on here. We still have more questions. We still have more. I don't know. So maybe I, I do think this, very is, interesting. this is like a really clear indication of how the Pharisees. And as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, like nobody's trying to kill Jesus in this passage. Yep. Yep. So like the Pharisees are like, they're, they're riled up, but they are engaging with him and they are continuing the conversation. They are, you know, Pharisees, man. Yep. Not as, yep. not as bad as we always think. No. And especially historically, we should we go ahead and link that too. Brent, go find my addendum video on the Pharisees because we're always so hard on the Pharisees and sometimes for good reason. And there are right ways to do that. And then we just often take it overboard. So throw that in the show notes as well, because... Yeah, they're not always as bad. And in fact, historically, they end up saving the day and they do pretty much align with the teachings of Jesus and his interpretations. And and uh, and, and so, yeah, they, they do change. They do evolve and they become something totally different in Jewish history. So it's, it's a great observation. All right. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamonAscipship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.